0: Hey guys, uh, welcome to the newest episode of the SaaS Sessions podcast. Uh, I'm Sunil, I'm your host for today. And today we have an amazing guest on the show, Patrick Thompson uh, from Seattle. He's the second guest from Seattle on the show, guys. So, yeah. Uh, so, he's a product designer and former, former design manager at the fourth biggest SaaS company in the world, which is Atlassian. And he's currently the co founder of Iteratively. So, hey, Patrick, welcome on the show. And let's get to know more about you, your journey and, you know, iteratively and what all you do. Sunil, thanks for having me. Definitely excited to be on SaaS Sessions. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Great. So I, I want to know more about iteratively and, you know, it ha- I, I know that it has a lot to do with data, but before that, let's talk about you and, you know, your journey. So you were the design manager at the fourth biggest SaaS company in the world. So, you know, how, how, was, how was that experience?
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was amazing. Alassian's a great place to work. I've learned a ton while working there. I originally started out on the growth team at Alassian. I was there in San Francisco office for about two years and then transitioned over to become a design manager on Jira Software in Sydney. So I actually mm-hmm. had the opportunity to relocate to Australia. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was just an incredible life experience and got to live in a different country and travel the world a bit. And yeah, I had a great time. Got to work with a bunch of really talented folks as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, definitely grew, grew a ton both professionally and personally.
0: Great. And so what, what product did you work on in Atlassian or it was all the products?
1: So when on the growth team, I was primarily focusing on activation. So running Uh high velocity experiments on top of funnel and then Uh virality in products. So trying to get Uh folks to invite others into their, their, their instance, as well Uh as sharing content. So making it uh-huh. really easy to share content like confluence pages or jira tickets or boards within jira as well uh-huh. um, and then when i transitioned over to jira software as a design manager
0: uh-huh.
1: i was primarily focusing on a new product initiative that they're doing called next gen experience and that was really rethinking entire product experience behind how jira software was configured and how it was used by end customers as well. So the best way to sort of equate to it is like, how do you make your software a little bit more Trello-y? Like how is it, how do you simplify the workflow configuration and management
0: of these types of projects? And yeah, that was that was a great experience. And so how, how did you get turned? I'm really curious, like, you know, you said you started as a growth uh, guy, like in you know, the growth team and then you were design manager. So how did that transition mm-hmm. happen?
1: yeah yeah so actually my first job out of college my background professionally is in design but my background academically was in business so my both my undergrad and master's are in business and Uh i got really into marketing and started out doing a lot of conversion rate optimization and seo and sem out of college Mm -hmm. and that eventually transitioned me over into more of the user experience aspect behind how uh, user like user psychology and how users use products and right. got me more into design and eventually joined Alassian as a growth designer. And right. that's pretty much where my passion is, is how to how do you uh, optimize product experiences and how do you uh, get folks to experience the aha moment? So everything uh-huh. from onboarding to in-product engagement and retention campaigns. Right. Um, and a lot of high-velocity AB, A-B testing. And as part of that, obviously, data comes in quite often. So when you're doing right. experimentation, uh, you're doing cohort analysis, all these types of experiences are derived from good, high-quality data. So I had a lot right. of experience doing analysis and working with some great data analysts and data scientists mm-hmm. and other companies. And so mm-hmm. that's what kind of got me into
0: data. Right. So let's, let's talk about that uh, in a bit, but before that, I have a great question. So, you had a great job, just like you said, right? From what you uh, just said or how you described your life at relation, I think it was very great. And to be working in the fourth biggest class in the world, and obviously great products, and plus a great role, plus a very dynamic role, right? And you do what you like to do. So, why did, why, you know, why quit a great job and start your own? Work?
1: My wife asks me this question all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, I'd say like for me, like I always wanted to do a startup. I yeah. was very entrepreneurial in college and tried to get into more doing uh, mm-hmm. marketing consulting with small businesses. And I was always really interested in eventually doing a company. Unfortunately, I, I got into a lot of debt uh, in college from student loan debt, you know, in the hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that that kind of helped, that kind of put a pause on it going and doing that after college and actually really I'm thankful for that because I was able to work with some really good companies and learn a ton uh, out of college before being able to do that. But obviously, now that I'm a little bit more mature in my career, I was able to pay off all my student loans. I had a bit of a nest egg saved up. So financially, the timing was really well positioned for me to go take the risk. And it was a conversation that my wife and I both had around "Hey, now or never kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we want to have a family at some point as well. And then, yeah, like I mentioned, Alaskan is an amazing company to work for. I feel yeah. like Mike and Scott, the two CEOs, have built an amazing place that is super welcoming and friendly and folks feel are very well taken care of. And I was growing both professionally uh, as well as personally there. As I mentioned, I got really into yoga and got really into photography and it was a really well-rounded person. Um, but, like, there was always something missing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that's
1: I feel mistake. like... Yeah. Yeah, there was always something missing. Like I had this drive to go start something from scratch. Actually, before I moved to Sydney, they had this initiative called Greenhouse, which was going to be a startup incubator inside of Alassian. Mm-hmm. And I originally signed up to go do that when I was moving to Sydney. But unfortunately, that project got got uh, p- postponed. So then I ended up transitioning over to Jira Software as a design manager. But I was always really interested in trying to take a product or project from zero to one. Like how do you right. create the initial experience, how do you figure out and validate um, that there's something there and then actually go get customers to use it and get feedback and, and iterate. I was always really focusing on growth and optimization post-product market fit. Mm-hmm. I really wanted an experience where I could actually try to work with a team of folks and actually go from zero to one. And yeah, so that was that was the primary driver is just wanting to go create something from nothing and then I had the opportunity to work with an amazing co-founder as well, Andre, who right. we worked with, I worked with previously, uh, his company called Simplicity prior to joining Alasian. Uh-huh. He's was an amazing engineer, and amazing friend, and the opportunity came up to work with him and the timing was perfect. And yeah, like if, if you know, I don't think I would have left alasian if yeah. uh, he wasn't the one that I was going to go do this
0: with. Totally. I mean, yeah, when you have a great job at a very great company and everything's going well, you kind of go into the comfort zone, right? And blaming uh, yeah. you know, that is like really hard, but you know, it's great that you did and you know, you chase the dream or the kind of goal that you really had right? From, from the beginning of your career that you always wanted to run something of your own, build from something from zero to one. That's really great. So, so yeah, let's, let's talk about iteratively. Yeah, so iteratively is a platform
1: to help teams collaborate on their analytics data. So primarily customer telemetry or product analytics. So to to give you a little background on sort of how we decided to work on this, it actually probably is best to start from the beginning. So Mm -hmm. when Andre and I decided that we wanted to work together, we didn't really have an idea of what we wanted to work on. We had uh, a group of folks who we wanted to solve problems for, which -hmm. was other software teams. Um, We had a few hypotheses from my time at Alassian, Mm -hmm. uh, but pretty much none of those panned out. But we spent the first six months of 2019 doing customer discovery, customer development, uh, so we would just go out to you know, different teams and talk to product managers and data analysts and growth folks and marketers and customer success people, really just trying to understand the pain points that they had with getting their job done. And yeah, for six months, we didn't do any development. All we did was have conversations with folks and, and try to open up our ears to listen to the problems they had. And the number one problem that we heard was, there's three problems in particular that we heard one was and one of them we ended up uh, building the company around the the primary problem that we heard was around customers not trusting their data that they're capturing in order to make business decisions with this data in order to hook it up to marketing automation to do any personalization or experimentation with this type of data Mm -hmm. and when we talk about data here it's typically customer telemetry data so time series data so what are customers doing in your product? How are you analyzing that behavior in order to improve your product experience or deliver a better service? And when we really tried to uncover why companies were struggling with this, because they had tools like Amplitude, or Mixdown, or right. Segment, there's a lot of tools in the space for data visualization already or trying to make use of this data. There's you know, a lot of marketing automation tools for sending messages like Braze or Autopilot or Vero. And there's tools for customer success teams to help prevent churn like Vitaly or MadKdu. so there's a lot of tools out there in the, the SaaS space, but what we kept on seeing is that there's a lot of human error involved between mm-hmm. the data consumers, folks who need to make use of this data, and mm-hmm. data producers, folks who are actually responsible for doing the instrumentation, typically engineers uh, mm-hmm. who are writing explicit code-based analytics in the product. And there's just a a lot of human error. You have, you know, your iOS team sending an event called user signed in and then your Android team sending an event called user logged in. Mm -hmm. And the data consumer is left to either do, you know, join within SQL or try to manage this data together in a form that makes sense for the business. And there's no real good QA process around how companies manage this data today. It's really kind of an afterthought for a lot of organizations. Um, We hear that term quite a bit. And so when we thought about how we could help. We looked at what a lot of organizations were trying to do internally and, you know, they were creating spreadsheets or Confluence pages or notion pages, trying to manage this type of data and Mm -hmm. create sort of documentation. But inevitably that documentation would become out of date. It was always uh, a very painful process to have these conversations with these teams who were struggling. And so we thought there has to be a better way. And uh, we ended up building a solution that really helps bring the entire company together on what's important to their business, which is data and help them define what are the metrics that they care about? What are the events uh, needed to answer those metrics? What are the properties or attributes on those events that you want to capture and really define it in a structured way with a workflow to help make it a very collaborative experience. And then what we do with all of that, with that entire schema that you've built in our application, that entire Mm -hmm. spec, we actually generate code for your developers and integrate into their software development process to make their lives 10 times easier to actually add instrumentation and to guarantee that the data that you're
0: actually capturing is correct totally so that's that's like you you had like a lot of research done around the exact problems to have come up to such a niche solution right and for such a big problem that people might might be overlooking every day at the job, so this kind of, you know, makes me curious about why data tracking is important for product managers.
1: Yeah, no, great question. Yeah, it is definitely like that 80-20 rule that comes into play with so data. And so I'd say like 80% of most companies' data is probably fine, right? Like it's it's, it's, it's good. But there's that 20% extra mile and like getting things perfect, which is really where I think a, a tool like it really comes in and helps and the 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 way that i best describe this is that data you know eight eight ten years ago teams weren't really running high velocity experimentation unless you were you know much bigger company teams weren't using data for email personalization or 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 landing page personalization you weren't doing personalized advertising based off customer behavior within your product and all these things are coming to the forefront there's a lot of use cases where customer success teams marketing teams sales teams even are all using this type of data to better serve their customers. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely a new, you know, a wave or a new trend that we're seeing. And, and what we imagine is that 10 years from now, even it's going to be much, much more important than what it is even today. And what we see is the best companies today, like the Alassians, the Drifts, you know, are all using this type of data to really create amazing product experiences and, and, and improve their, their level of service for their customers. The best teams, you know, the teams who use this data will ultimately win within the market. And when you see like, okay, well, I have good enough data to answer a behavioral question, that might be fine. But when you're hooking this data to marketing automation platform, good enough doesn't necessarily work in that context because you'll end up sending the wrong email or you'll end up entering the wrong user into a segment for an in-product experience or to make the wrong business decision ultimately and that could cost your organization millions of dollars. And this is where I feel like some governance around this type of data really helps, helps ensure oh, yeah. that quality and helps ensure the decision making of how you're actually using this data
0: for. Totally right. And how do you identify exactly, you know, this bad data, which is like this 15, 20 percent. So how do you guys do it at iteratively?
1: Yeah, no, good question. I'd say there's two types of folks. There's folks who who are aware that there's bad data within an organization and there's folks who have their head buried in the sand and <laughs> don't yet know that they have bad data. <laughs> yeah. And the reality of the situation is that every organization to some extent has bad data. And you know, when we think about the type of data that we're really helping companies with, it's around customer telemetry, clickstream data, product analytics. Um, and this data is relatively visible within the organization. We're not necessarily talking about your Salesforce data your CRM data when we talk about customer telemetry data it's very very easy to think of it as an afterthought for most organizations Mm -hmm. and it's very very easy to it's kind of a chicken and the egg problem so if companies are getting not getting value from this data they're not investing potentially in making sure that it's high quality companies who are getting value out of this data or who have worked at organizations previously where they got a ton of value out of this type of data Mm -hmm. uh, definitely see the value and then they invest in it And when we talk to, and when we talk to product managers who are trying to identify whether or not they have a quality problem or don't have a quality problem, the best way that we tell them is like, we guarantee you that you do have issues today. And our best recommendation for folks to do is go just do a data audit. So go spend, spend a week to go catalog all the events that you have that are being tracked in your tools, catalog how this data is actually being used by your CSM team or your sales team, try to figure out, sort of create a data map uh, around what you're actually capturing, where it's being captured from, how it's being used. And that really helps give you some insight into the importance of this data within your organization. Mm -hmm. And what we really typically see is that there's a lot of lip service play to this type of data as well. So a lot of folks are, yes, we're data-driven or we're Uh data-informed, but then you ask them like, hey, when was the last time you actually used this type of data or how are you using this type of data within your organization? And it's typically crickets. <laughs> you'll, you'll, they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, like I look at an amplitude report like once every couple of weeks, and you're like, oh well, is that, you know, is that enough? Like, how do you, you know, is that enough for your organization? Do you think you're, you know, using data to its full effectiveness? And right. In some cases, in some cases, they're like, oh, you know, if you're if you're a small startup, you're making a lot of decisions based off gut and intuition, or if you're a sales-driven organization, you're making decisions based off of RFPs and customer advisory boards. But if you're sort of a product-led growth organization with, you know, you're trying to cut down acquisition cost and increase product retention, mm-hmm. you're living breathe Like this, this, is, this is like gold for your organization. Like this type of data is right. the lifeblood of how you're gonna be optimizing your product experience, how you're gonna be acquiring your customers, how you're gonna be better servicing those customers. And it really just depends on the type of business. And you'd be surprised that even a lot of the blue chip Businesses who have SaaS products are trying to become more product-led growth. They're trying to Surely, reduce the customer uh, acquisition costs. And, yeah. and I think you're probably pretty familiar with this at WhatFix as well. But it's definitely a huge trend that we see within the market.
0: Yeah, totally. So I think that product-led growth is like, you know, this keyword is uh, catching up a lot. So I've hosted Wes Bush, who runs Product-Led Institute on the show before. Mm. I've hosted Kiran Flanagan, who's the VP of Marketing at HubSpot. So he talks a lot on product-led growth. And there's a lot of uh, product-led, you know, alliance product-led, summit, uh, online events that are happening as well around the same topic. So it's definitely a hot topic for product managers and product marketers. So I think from, from what I said just now, so that, that kind of defines or it helps kind of identify between a good product manager or, you know, a good product and a product manager and a great product and a product manager, right? So great product and product manager who really worry about how to make that 15-20% uh, of data, which is bad, how to fix that, right? So does this data, which is like really bad and solving it and cleaning it. So does it really affect a product manager's job or their responsibilities in any way?
1: Yeah, I'd say when we when we think about how the, the typical workflow for data today within most organizations is uh, you as a product manager might be working on a few features, you're trying to solve a few customer pain points, and you're working within your, your agile squad or your, your software team to, to really ship software. And typically, uh, a lot of that decision-making into what you should be prioritizing is informed based off your qualitative data, so customer research, customer feedback, your quantitative data like usage metrics, feature adoption metrics, and you know things like experiments. And when you're shipping new features, a lot of the times we hear that data is sort of an afterthought, but in reality, it needs to be sort of embedded into the software development lifecycle. So similar to how developers write test cases for software code, PMs should be thinking about what are the metrics that they should be moving when they're actually shipping a feature, you know, doing a product enhancement. How, what does success look like for that? So what is the baseline of that metric today? What is the target for when we're actually shipping this like um, 30 days down the line, what should it be? Uh, and if we can get you know, product managers and software teams in general to think about you know, the outcomes that they're trying to drive versus the output of what they're doing, we'll ultimately be building better software as, a, as, a, as, a, you know, as an industry the other thing that we we see quite often when we talk when we talk about like how pm's transition from you know very much output to outcome driven it's it's how do you adopt that within the organization so typically the organization is a reflection of the values as a whole and primarily the values of the leadership team within that organization so if you're working for a company where the leadership team doesn't necessarily value data driven decision making or they don't necessarily understand the nuances of things like product-led growth or experimentation or feature discovery and adoption, and all these types of things that are very valuable for what we do within, within software, then mm-hmm. it's going to be an uphill battle to try to become more data data-driven. When we see companies where the leadership team really buys into this, they want folks looking at reports, they want folks making data informed decisions,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: they expect PMs to not necessarily talk about shipping as the definition of done, but what was the impact on the organization for shipping that feature? How did they measure success or the learnings right. behind, behind that? Then I think, I feel like those are much healthier conversations and much more empowered pms because then pms are usually given a a metric to actually go move and they're empowered to go actually do that versus if you're a pm in an organization that doesn't value that then it's going to be an uphill battle regardless of your own personal inclination to go use data
0: totally and i i know that there's a lot of again it all comes from the leadership right as you said So if leadership team sees value or, you know, if they have the buy-in only, then the PMs can really go and start this process of, you know, identifying bad data and trying to go behind and fix it because the leadership team would always care about the impact, right? They would always see the bigger picture. They don't want want to get uh, into the integrities of it generally. So how do you get the stakeholders involved, make them see value in all this if they are not seeing value currently? What's in it for them, like?
1: Yeah, great question. Yeah, great question. I think uh, that's that's the best way to sort of approach this. When when you think about transitioning or transforming your organization from you know potentially using a little bit of data to now using more data to for a variety of use cases, the best way to do it in my mind is to start small and have proof points. It's okay. the the easiest way is to show wins. So when you talk about the level of investment to transition organization, typically what we see a lot of smaller companies do is they end up hiring a head of data where they hire sort of, um, you know, a VP of product, or a director of product analytics and okay. these roles, their entire responsibilities around adoption and creating self-service uh, decisions within these organizations or enabling folks to use data. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a really big investment for an organization who may or may not have been sort of high growth, high velocity, but they're growing really quickly. Right. Um, to, to, to see the value. And so the best way that we tell companies to do is, hey, just start small. Start using, start instrumenting your product. Start using this data for, it could just be for marketing automation. So typically there's there's two things that we think of here. One is revenue driving. So how do you use data for to drive more additional revenue? And I think marketing automation or sales automation are probably the two biggest ways that you can convince a VP of sales or convince a VP of customer success to get behind and help to actually fund the initiative. The other thing is obviously VP of Product for business decisions. So how do you know that what you're shipping is actually moving the needle? How do you measure feature engagement, cohort retention, all these different types of metrics that are the lifeblood of SaaS. That's that's, that's super important. But uh, a lot of folks still today think that they that their intuition or that their gut is the best way to make decisions, and that data is only you know it's still it's still it's only input into that. A lot of folks lean more heavily on their gut than probably on data, in my mind, than what they should. It really just depends on the organization. And I would say, yeah, so start small, find a use case, instrument that use case, show proof points, and then expand from there. And then if you do that enough times, eventually you can help your organization sort of with that transformation.
0: Right, I think these these are the best practices to keep data, data quality high. But we have probably three or four mm-hmm. best practices that the you know, listeners can take yeah. away. Yeah. So I talked
1: about, obviously, during the data audit earlier. So that's a, it's definitely a oh. best practice as far as understanding the, the landscape of data coverage mm-hmm. that you have within your product today. Mm-hmm. The other starting small and expanding out. The last one that I really recommend is having a full-time owner. So we talked about having most companies hiring a VP of data or a head of data or a head of analytics. That's that's a big investment to make. You don't have mm-hmm. to hire that person. as If you're a product manager who's really passionate about this, Take ownership. Like you know, put your hand up within your organization and say, "Hey, I will. I will own the tracking pond. I will. I will make sure that we have best practices in place for quality assurance and, you know, help teach folks within the organization how to use this data so that we can drive derive more value from it." And I feel like this is a great space in the sense that like it's still a very new space. Like these tools, obviously, right. you know, a lot of these tools didn't exist ten years ago. So. For a PM, a young PM especially, or someone who's really trying to grow their career, I so feel like taking ownership of these types of projects within an organization is a great way to, to sort of grow grow your career.
0: Totally. And again, so for, for this PM, right, as an action point after listening to this sh- episode, you know what, I just want to give them an action point, right? So if, mm-hmm. if any PMs are listening, so what questions they could go and, you know, they could start answering about, their you, you know, to check their data quality about this data audit, which is like the first step. So maybe you can share the questions you asked in, you know, your interview process when you were researching.
1: Yeah, so typically our interviews for customer discovery were very open-ended. So we actually followed uh, a process. You know, I mean, a lot of folks probably are familiar with State Blank, but we have an advisor uh, for a company called Justin Wilcox who created this process called the focus framework which is very open-ended interviews so it's hey what is your role within your company what does success look like for you within your role what are the problems that you're struggling with in order to achieve that success can you give me an example of the last time you tried to solve that problem how big of a problem is that for you so it was a very unstructured oh, it was a very structured process but non-biased process as far as the interviews and customer discovery that we went through and definitely highly recommend that if anybody is going to is thinking about doing a startup, this is the best way to make sure that you're not scratching your own itch, but you're actually solving real problems for real people. And obviously that you're validating the the problem before you think about the solution. A lot of folks are solution-led, don't be solution-led. But when we think about the the questions that we ask customers now specifically, around to really to suss out whether or not they have data quality issues, a lot of the companies that come to us already have an understanding that they have a data quality issue. So, uh, most of the customers who come from us were are either from existing existing channels that we hang out in so a lot of mm-hmm. slack communities or they're searching for a solution to the problem and then they find us on Google mm-hmm. so that's and obviously referrals so word of mouth is the best way for us that we've been growing so we don't typically ask a lot of you know what we consider like sales questions when we're, when we're talking to these companies they already have identified that they're a good fit for our product um, right. When when I think of companies who, it's really easy for me to disqualify a company by asking, when was the last time you used data? And if you right. ask, or when was the last time you, and like, when how do you how do you view data? Like, how do you view the impact of data within your organization? Right. And if mm-hmm. folks you know, folks are like, hey, data is the lifeblood of our organization. This is how we operate. Or if po- folks are, if folks have a growth team, that's a really good indicator of our product being a good fit for them. Because most growth teams obviously care a lot about data quality. It's the only way to really do high velocity experimentation is to trust the data and the results that you're actually capturing. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, this happened to us quite a bit, even at Elasticon, where we'd run an experiment and then you know you run it for six weeks, you'd get the results, you'd analyze, you post in post experiment, you'd analyze the results of that experiment, and you find mm-hmm. out that you weren't capturing all the information that you need, or there's a data bug, or there was a, a bug in the way that you you did your cohorting and that means that's six weeks of wasted results and that's six weeks of missed learning opportunity for the organization and this happened to us a few times so it was enough that we actually had to invest in fixing it internally and so when you think of the questions that you know i typically uh, ask companies it's really i'm looking for indicators that they care about data Uh, we know when you think about building a company like what we're looking for right now is the early adopters not even like, and you know, I'd rather work with a company who understands the value of data, sees the value in the product mm-hmm. initially, and then we'll, you know, obviously go to early majority, then late majority, and so on and so on mm-hmm. as we expand the product. But right now, we're really looking for early adopters who just understand
0: the value of data and and
1: capturing quality data for their organization.
0: Totally. That's a great takeaway for a lot of PMs who are listening uh, to this episode. So I have three rapid fire questions or lightning questions for you. So maybe we can just answer what's, what's on top of your mind. Yeah. So, yeah. so what do you know about your work now that you wish you would have known when you first started?
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, there's, there's obviously we talk a little bit about it and we can just talk about startups in general. I feel like with startups in general, I feel one of the things that was super valuable for me, not knowing it going into this full time, was just the ability of having a good support network. So I found founders and other CEOs and folks who have done startups before to be super supportive and just generally great sources of insight and help. Mm -hmm. Where I just didn't realize, you know, that was when you're not a founder and you're not doing a startup like you don't realize how strong of a community that is mm-hmm. and i recommend anybody who's thinking about doing a startup is to try to ingrain themselves within within that community it could be locally within your geography or it could just be online i talked to a lot of other co-founders all over the globe now at this point and i found that extremely helpful uh, just to have that support network because you go through a lot of things that most folks just don't ever have to consider going through and yeah, it's great to, it's great to have those resources to lean on. That, that's good. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, and the, the other thing about doing a startup is it's, it's a, it's a ton of work. So figure out how to manage your energy, not your time. So like, obviously you can pour a ton of time into something and not get the results that you want. So similar to being data driven, it's like, how do you actually figure out when's the best, what's the best use of your time? Uh, Focus less on the busy work. Figure out ways that you can actually scale your impacts and manage your energy in the sense where it's like, hey, if you're feeling great today, work extra hard. If you're not feeling great, give yourself the permission to take a day off and recover and recoup so that you can come prepared the next day to actually hit the ground
0: hard. Right. That's really great. What did your biggest professional failure teach you? Uh, biggest
1: professional failure. So early on, so I, as I mentioned, I started out doing conversion optimization, conversion rate optimization at a company called skin it in San Diego. And I remember pushing an experiment on Friday at like probably oh, like 5 30 p.m and you're not supposed to really push code you know folks in software you know, don't push code on the weekends going into the weekends <laughs> yeah and i pushed an experiment mm-hmm. because at the time our vp of marketing was like oh no it's fine just feel free to push it like you're good you're good to go so i pushed mm-hmm. in and i ended up breaking the cart all weekend so we lost like 70k in revenue that weekend oh damn and i, I mean that was like in two days <laughs> and found out about it on monday morning when i got back into work because I mean, we just didn't have any good processes i was very much more of a cowboy coder at the time and yeah like it was just around the notion of communication and collaboration so i mean i, I got the green light from my boss so i was like hey let's do it and i didn't have the foresight to be like ah, i should probably like let the team know that i'm doing this and should probably communicate to the engineers just to make sure we get like one quality pass through this before i push it live and yeah just general lack of uh foresight into the impact of that led to a pretty big financial and i think i was like 21 at the time so like 70k was quite a lot of money so even mm-hmm. even now i mean i've i've we've now run experiments where you know we've we've well, only you know that i've been a part of that have contributed to millions of dollars in revenue gains <laughs> which is a lot more than 70k but as as a, as a as a young kid i definitely remember that having a pretty big scare and like hey am i gonna lose my job for this I didn't lose my job, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, the ability to, to know to communicate and collaborate with others and be able to uh, make sure everyone's on the same page around what you're doing and why you're doing it and, yeah. and have the foresight to know, like, hey, it doesn't matter if we ship it on Friday. You know, right. it's probably better to have this tested and ship it on
0: Monday and yeah.
1: not take the risk.
0: Yeah, I think that learning came to you at a very high cost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> So what's the number one thing that has helped you shorten your skills learning curve?
1: I think, I mean, for me, it's, it's, I, uh, I, I I read a lot less than I used to, but I do a lot more than I used to as well. So I tend to jump head on into something. So if I don't know how to do something, I just jump in and try to do it. I used to read a ton. And so I grew a ton from reading. I'm a really quick reader. So I I tend to find that like, all. I'll read for about five, 10 minutes. If there's something that I'm trying to do for the first time, I'll read about it for five, 10 minutes and I'll just jump in and try to get it done. And Mm -hmm. that ability to not be like, I don't know how to do it. I'm not going to do it. The ability to be like, okay, great. Like, I'm sure I can learn this. Mm -hmm. I feel it's like been my biggest life lesson where it's like, even if something is scary or I've not done it before, I'm willing to try to get it done.
0: Mm -hmm. And...
1: The reason I feel like that's been the most impactful, at least now that I'm in a startup, is I don't have to worry about asking for permission. I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm gonna do it right. It's better to try and fail than to not try at all. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when you're in a startup, you're doing a thousand things or there's a thousand things that are trying to grab for your attention. So having the ability to jump in and try to learn something on the fly, even if you make mistakes, is, is completely uh, a game changer, at least in my mind. Like, I wasn't always like that. So and I think the, the notion of doing a startup really dictates and requires that you have those skills. And I feel like the best way to learn those skills is to Go do a startup <laughs> so go try it like you'll 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 have to do a thousand things that you're uncomfortable doing and you've never
0: done before yeah totally that's that's really great advice patrick so thanks a lot those were amazing insights so thanks a lot patrick for coming you uh, know taking this time for recording this episode and uh, thanks for having me definitely excited and appreciate the conversation